So I, I went in, I introduced myself, she knew who I was. She said, I'm really scared because these two guys over here are watching me and they're showing their penis to me. And I said, well, did you call your sergeant? And the sergeant came and talked to them and they did nothing. So I said, well, I'm gonna take a shower, I'll be back out. I took the shower and in the middle of the shower, I hear the screams, ran out of the shower. And I looked in and one was holding her down, the other one had ripped her clothes, it was, was following her breasts. And I just went in and uh, extended round 10. And uh, I proceeded to beat him with the, with the phone handle. You, you, end, you end up in Corcoran prison. Yeah. And we've done our research on this. In Corcoran, at that time, it was featured in 60 Minutes because the guards were having gladiator fights, pit, pitting off to the prisoners. Come on. And if the prisoners refused to fight, they just shot them dead. Who do you want fighting if you're a guard? The money's on you. I fight anybody and everybody. You don't want to get shot. You want to win. But who's going to fuck with you? I did it twice. And then Lieutenant Riggs said, no. I want you to be my clerk in the office. But I watched. I watched. In every cell block, they have red buckets full of sand. And they hang them in the tiers on the upper tier. And what they do is, before they kill you, they give you that warning shot that goes into the red one. And when the sand falls, the next one's going into you. Okay. We hit him about a week earlier. I had him hit. Yeah. And unfortunately, he survived. He was behind the gate. I go, motherfucker, you're a piece of shit. How could you touch a girl, let alone cut her arms off? She got a million dollars. And he was rolling a cigarette, a bugler cigarette. And he looked up to me and said, yeah, but the bitch can't count it. Oh my God. Is that, is that insane? And I went through the turnstile. They had turnstiles at CMC. And when I went through the turnstile, he hit me in the back of the head. And the other one stabbed me in the neck. And I fought there on a, a daily because people would say, hey, that's the guy that, that's boxer from 18th Street. So they didn't know, they had to get permission to fight me. That's where I brought in all the celebrities and started promoting fights from prison. So, and not just that, we go into the fact that that's when I started representing the athletes. Why, why did he bury a bus full of farm workers? He didn't want to pay him. So did they just die? Yeah, they died, they all died. Too many of these guys. No, but they're all in my life. They're all my friends. <laughs> We, we've done our oh, you're looking, you're looking at me like, where's the door? <laughs>
in the process of being sexually assaulted? What happened? What, what was it? Let's go. Let's start. How did that day start for you, Joey? Um, for about a month prior to that day, I was training for a fight. Uh, California Men's Facility (CMF). It was a a mental health facility and a prison. So you would you were among people that were crazy. There were 11s, 50 Ds. They were legally found mentally ill, but they put them with us. And they had a boxing program. The Department of Corrections had a boxing program since the 1960s. And it was a phenomenal program where boxing prisons fought against other prisons. Wardens bet on their fighters against wardens. They would bet other wardens about. And because I was the ex-champ, I was highly sought. And I was in Vacaville training for the fight a month prior to Everybody's gambling and betting on me or the other guy. <laughs> and um, I'm in the gym training, and one of the officers tells me, hey, there's a new lady, a new officer working your tier, your module. Keep an eye out on her. She's a young girl, first week on the job. And I said, no problem. My neighbor at that time in S unit was Charlie, Charles Manson. And uh, it, was, it was celebrity role everybody of, of stature and I came I went to the fight won the fight it was about six seven ish went back my eye was closed I was you know I, I fought a 10 round fight in prison and I, I won but I was beat up so I'm, I, I went in I introduced myself she knew who I was she said I'm really scared because these two guys over here are watching me and they're showing their penis to me and I said well did you call your sergeant and the sergeant came and talked to them and they did nothing so I said well I'm gonna take a shower I'll be back out I took the shower and in the middle of the shower I hear the screams ran out of the shower and Charlie's got his hands up and telling me do something boxer do something and I looked in, and one was holding her down. The other one had ripped her clothes. It was was funneling her breasts. And I just went in and uh, extended round ten. And picked up the phone. Back then, in the day, there were phones that weighed about twenty, thirty pounds. I don't know if you remember the old dial ones. And uh, I proceeded to beat him with the with the phone handle, and knocked them both out. Carried her, put her breasts back in her bra. And in her pocket was her alarm. I hit the alarm. The bells went off. She was about 100 pounds, a little girl. I carried her to the door, put my knee against the door, opened the door, closed it to keep everybody inside. And then I saw them running up the stairs at me. And before I could say anything, they just proceeded to just beat me because they thought I was the one who did it to her. They threw me down the stairs. I rolled down the stairs, my leg got caught. I showed you the, I had double knee replacement. And um, about maybe 10 hours later after they took turns beating me, they beat me so much that, and kicked me so much that it didn't hurt anymore. It was just the thud. You know, it wasn't the, you, you oh, it was just, uh, uh. and after a while, I just accepted the punishment I was getting. I had never been beat that vicious. And every time another officer came, a sergeant or a lieutenant, he took a couple shots at me too. And then when she told them what happened, it changed. 
and my life changed. My life changed. From that day on, I don't know if you have the officer's affidavit. I do have the officer's affidavit because if you've seen part one of what we've done already with Joey, he's brought along all of his paperwork. He's had us Google all the characters he's mentioned and he's backed his story up completely to the hilt. And I will read the affidavit. Do you want me to say the woman's name or should we leave that out of it? No, she's, she's still in my corner. I spoke to her. I, I, we exchanged Christmas cards. Oh, fantastic. She told her children about me. Wow, wow, that's amazing. And when I went to the parole board every year, she would write a letter for me, so... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Affidavit of Adela Maria Esparza. I began working at California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California, as a correctional officer on October 8th, 1982. My duties included the supervision of inmates classified as psychotics in remission. Before working at CMF, I worked at the California Institute for Men in Chino, for 18 months, also as a correctional officer. I make this statement on behalf of Joey Torres, who saved my life at CMF. On October 15th, 1982, after one week of orientation, I began my first day of supervising Wing P3 on the psych unit. Shortly after my shift began, an inmate named TM started following me and making comments. Throughout the evening, TM became increasingly menacing and bizarre in his behaviour toward me. I called his behaviour to the attention of my direct supervisor, Sergeant P. After a brief meeting, Sergeant P determined that Mr. TM posed no threat and refused to take any action. Because TM continued in his bizarre behaviour, I also advised Officer B. She sued and left the department with $2.8 million. Wow. Like this because of that officer who... Excuse me for interrupting. <laughs> Because TM continued his bizarre behaviour, I also advised Officer B, a supervisor of another wing on the same shift of TM's disruptive behaviour. Officer B indicated that he would occasionally check to see how I was doing. Officer B said that if I got into trouble, I could count on inmate Torres because he's a good inmate. Joey also reassured me that if I got into trouble, he would back me up. Again, I complained to my supervisor of TM's continued and increasingly menacing behaviour. I requested TM either be moved or locked up in his cell. He denied this request. At one point, I heard TM say under his breath that he was going to kill me. As I began to direct all inmates back into their cells at lock-up time through a pass window, I looked up and the next thing I knew, TM punched me in the face with such force that my teeth were loosened. Bloody hell, my mouth lacerated and my face blooded. TM came into the room, stood over me and attempted to hit me again. I was only semi-conscious but managed to kick his groin area and began screaming. He proceeded to attack me again. Although there were a number of inmates surrounding us by that time, only Joey intervened to stop TM's attack. At Chino, the alarm button is located on the hip area. Because I was unfamiliar with the placement of the newer alarm button, I reached for my hip area. Joey yelled out to remind me that the button was located in my chest pocket. I was then able to alert other officers of my need for assistance. It is my belief that TM had every intention of killing me. Had it not been for Joey's intervention, I believe that TM would have killed me or caused serious bodily harm. Joey saved my life and averted a potentially volatile situation in which other inmates could have become disruptive. That evening, okay? that evening, I reported the events to Officer E.M. 
She assured me that Joey would get recognition in his file for saving an officer's life. It was not until earlier this year that I became aware that a report of this incident was not placed in his file. That's when they put the plate in my head. Oh my God. I did nothing to identify him or highlight his actions as I did not want to endanger his safety with the population. Recently, I learned that Joey was severely beaten by TM and as a result of his beating, there was a steel plate in his head. His attempt at saving my life put his own life in jeopardy and he had to be transferred out of the prison to Nevada. If called as a witness, I completely testify to the truth of the statement. Executed 28th of November 1989, San Francisco, California. Wow. So, so, um, all right, so you, you, you got the guys off her and then the guards beat, beat the crap out of you. You said it was for like 10 hours they were beating you. What what happened? Did they did you go to the medical unit after that or? No, they put me in the hole. They put you in the hole with my knees like that. Because you were still under suspicion of of doing being, it to her. Of doing she it was, to she her. She was semi-conscious. So she couldn't she couldn't defend you yeah. at that. St- when when did she come conscious? I I do not recall because I was in the hole. I just know at about two three in the morning, with my knees swollen, because both my knees when they kicked me and threw me down the stairs, my knees were lodged into the stair. So my body went forward, but my knees went that way. So I needed a double knee replacement. I'm sh- you said you saw the scars yesterday. Yeah. But um, I, I think that I need a break right now. Now you have to understand, the year's 1982. I had just got sentenced to 25 to life. Remember, 82 is when they sent me back, found me incorrigible. They sent me to Vacaville in the mental health unit because they said I had organic brain syndrome from boxing. But there was nothing wrong with me. But they said if I stood in that program and did well, that I could get out early. They were trying to say because of my violence that it was a mental problem. They didn't at that time know the breakdown in the 80s about the gang sanctions, etc., etc. So they sent me to CMC, and I fought on a weekly. Hey, that's the punk that saved the officer. And I would tell the administration, but she didn't submit that. Did you see when she submitted it? What year? Was it yet later? Was 86. It? I don't know what year. I've gone to a different section. She submitted it in 86 after she found out I was almost killed. Okay. Because they tried to say I was hit because of drugs and debts, but I demanded an investigation. I filed a writ of habeas corpus in the court demanding an investigation. But I want you to understand it. It means a lot for me to you to understand it. Because yes, I was that guy. But once this lady, once I saved her life, and I told you this and it sounds so bizarre, but the greatest thing that happened in my life was her being assaulted. Joey, can we can we go back to your recovering? You're in the hole. You've been beaten up for ten hours. What happens after the hole? I'll tell you. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's make it happen, Captain. (laughs) (laughs) Take us to what happens at the end of that night, then. After you got beat up for ten hours. They put me in the hole. Um, I stood in the hole uh, until they found out I was the one who saved her. I spoke to the warden. I spoke to the investigators. They apologized. They gave me great. They sent me to outside hospital to get my legs taken care of. 
I stood in the infirmary for about two months because I needed a double knee replacement. Um, and then they came to me and said, because of what you did and because we know that the inmates want you, we're going to put you in the hole. I said, no, I refuse to go to the hole. I refuse protective custody. I'm not a rat. I'm not a child molester. I'm a grown-ass man. And if I have to pay the price for saving the life of an officer, then I'll die on the main line. And, um, wow, here I go again. I'm sorry. No, you're fine, Joey. You're I'm fine. sorry. It's, it's okay to get emotional. Yeah. You know, you've never told your story before. You were living these things. Yeah. So, and I, so where I, did they house you after the hole? Uh, they sent me, um, I spent a year in the hole. And in yeah, a year. Yeah. A year in the hole. And I'm talking the hole. I'm talking where you don't come out. What was the conditions? Was oh, forget about it. Forget about it. Forget about it. If they miss feeding you for a day, they apologized. Showers every two weeks. Madness. All you heard was people screaming in there, playing chess from one cell to the other with moves. L4, X6. And the other guy down the... Do you remember that? Yes. And all night, and I was like, wow, I can't, stand, I can't take this. And then I said no. I said, I filed a writ. I filed an appeal. And I said, you know, I'm in here for something that I did. They sent me to uh, Central Men's Colony, CMC East, in San Luis Obispo, California. And I fought there on a, a daily because people would say, hey, that's the guy that, but that's boxer from 18th Street. So they didn't know, they had to get permission to fight me. But my homie stood up for me. Um, Lyle Hood, is, a, is, is I want to mention him tonight when we speak with Michael, was there. And he instructed the white boys from the brand that I was off limits. And Rick Stevens from Tower of Power, who was the shot caller for the BGF, the Black, Black Gorilla family, also said to me in private, that could have been my daughter. So I was cool, but I had to fight the riffraff. Is this the Tower Power, the song? Yeah, the song. Tell us, Jan, about the song. You're still what? a young man. <laughs> oh, it's one of the greatest songs of all time. Oh, you've heard it. You just don't know. I don't know. No. And uh, he was in prison for me. He was a very well-known singer. If you YouTube Rick Stevens, he was the founder of the Tower Power band. Cut the Cake. Um, I mean, just songs go on and on. But I was secured by the mob. Do you understand? There was a man named uh, Big D, Donald Garcia. He was a shot caller for the Emmet, And Rick was a shot caller for the BGF. Lyle Hood was with the Aryan Brotherhood. So I had no problem. They all said they, they knew, this, you know, you did right. But you're going to have to deal with what you have to deal with. So one day in 1986, coming back from the gym, working out, getting ready for a fight against another prison. I'm still fighting. You have to understand, I'm 26 at the time. You know, and I was supposed to get out the year before. Instead, I'm resentenced to life again. And then this happens. It was a clusterfuck. It was like God was mad at me. And, um, and I went through the turnstile. They had turnstiles at CMC. And when I went through the turnstile, there was a guy, a man behind me and another man here. And one, when you're at the gym and you're doing curls, the curling bar, they said they had it on video. He put it down his pants. And when I went through the turnstile, he hit me in the back of the head. 
while the other guy, it was a double, make sure I died. And the other one stabbed me in the neck. And um, I was back in the hole. Now I'm in the hole, and now the investigation says I'm in the hole for drugs and gambling. But they don't understand that I'm in the hole because these I saved the life of an officer. Remember, she still has a... She thought the next guy put it in my file. She thought her superiors... Remember, in 1986, there's no internet. It's all handwritten reports. There's no typing of any sort. And that's when I... I'm in the hole from 86 to 87 again. And that's when my comrades in there said... Man, oh gee, you need to you need to put word out. So that's when I filed my first writ of habeas corpus to the San Luis Obispo court, saying my life was put in danger and I was assaulted based on the fact I saved the life of a correctional officer who was being raped. The court granted the appeal, launched an investigation. When that transpired, that's when what you read, her affidavit. Can we just go back to the assault again? So did they leave you for dead? Yes. And how did you regroup from that? Well, I was taken to the hospital because I was in a, a coma. And I needed... Um... It's all right, brother. It's all right, um, brother. I needed a plate in my head. And I didn't know what a plate in the head was at that time. Yeah. And uh, the neck had launched my vocal cords, so... I've always had to talk. I've never, I never talked the way I, will, I talk usually ever since the, they hit me with a welding rod and it went through the vocal cord. And um, I took it out of my neck and I fought them. What? And then I, all I know is I went out. What? Yeah. That so was crazy. You blacked out. I blacked out and I woke up a week later in the hospital in San Luis Obispo and now everybody was my friend because I was assaulted, but they said I was assaulted because of drug deals. And, and I tried to explain to them I wasn't. So I was put back, after I was mended and the plate put in my head, I was back in the hole again. So did you have to go through a series of operations? No, they did one. Just one? They, they, the skull was fractured and they put a, a plate in my head. And I went for speech therapy for the neck while in prison because I was I, I I had a roughness to my voice. How long were you in hospital for? Um, three weeks. That's not long enough. Yeah, but they, they don't care because you're an inmate. And then what was really to add insult to injury, and I say it to this day, the doctor ordered morphine and oxycodone, and when I got to prison, they gave me aspirin. What? And this is the day after this traumatic because they don't want you high. So while in the hole, that's when I filed the appeal. And I, I stipulated in the appeal what transpired. Thank God there was an older man who was the associate director of corrections who remembered me from 76 when I fought at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles and knew Benny Yukitas. And he said, this man's not lying. They launched an investigation they had her do the affidavit, and um, it was phenomenal because they came to me and said, don't sue us, we'll send you to any prison in the United States of America tomorrow. And I chose Gene, Nevada. 
For what reason? Well, because they had a golf course. <laughs> I went from maximum prison to playing golf. <laughs> and they had a boxing program. And that's where you see on the video the Joey Torrey story on YouTube. That's where I brought in all the celebrities and started promoting fights from prison. So, and not just that, we go into the fact that that's when I started representing the athletes and working on my AA and my BA. But um, it was, it was the changing of my life that I, you know, it's, it's sad to say that the greatest thing that happened in my life was her being assaulted. It sounds so devious. Just going back to California Men's Colony then, you lived across the hall from a guy called Larry Singleton. Yeah, Larry. What? That's my, oh God, you know about Larry. Well, he did a quite heinous crime though, didn't yeah. he? Yes, he did, but uh, we got him. You See, got him? Yeah, we got him. He kidnapped a little girl in Riverside, raped, cut off her arms and left her by a ditch. Yeah. But he was, was going to get paroled. And when you said to him... Oh, no, no, I got it. No, it wasn't that. Okay. We hit him about a week earlier. I had him hit. Yeah. And unfortunately, he survived. So he was going to the parole board. I'll never forget it. You know, it's one of the things when you, when you die, they say your life flashes in front of you. I think that'll flash in front of me. Because he said to me, I said, he was behind the gate. I go, motherfucker, you're a piece of shit. How could you touch a girl, let alone cut her arms off. She got a million dollars and he was rolling a cigarette, a bugler cigarette, and he looked up to me and said, yeah, but the bitch can't count it. Oh my God. Is that, is that insane? Sick. Oh. You gotta, you, you don't know about Larry, do you know anything about him? A lot of these killers, famous killers, because California's got a disproportionate amount of them, there's so many of them that I've lost track. So Lawrence Bernard Larry Singleton, nicknamed the Mad Chopper, died December 25th, uh, 28, sorry, 2001. I know Florida is a part of died, it. He died in 2001 of cancer. But he was in Florida for more rapes. Oh, yeah. So he got paroled and he did it again in Florida. Think about that. How do you get paroled? I, you know, you got guys that are gangsters. Let's be honest. You got guys that are gangsters. They never get out. You got a guy that rapes and chops a girl's arm off, a little girl, and he gets out. And because they get in Florida. The justice system's upside down. That's what we're campaigning for on our channel, is an end to the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And people like that, and people who prey on kids, they should never get out. I believe you should never put hands on a woman or a child. Exactly. And if you do... Call me. You know, if they do call me, I have no problem. So, awaiting the move to um, Nevada then, there was Dan White. Yeah, Danny White, he was downstairs from me. He killed uh, Moscone and they made a movie about a milk. Harvey Milk? Harvey Milk, Why yeah. did he murder Harvey Milk? I have no, uh, no reason why. I and think he also murdered the San Franciscan uh, Moscone? Yeah, he married the mayor of Moscone. Yeah. What happened was, he was at war with... Um, White, running for office. He was a politician. He was a politician. And he went in and killed him. It was a big thing in California. And he buried a bus full of farm workers. No, this is that's a different... One, that's that's one. one, yeah. Wow. So who is Juan Corona? Because he features in your story. Juan Corona. Why did he bury a bus full of farm workers? He didn't want to pay him. 
So did they just die? Yeah, they died. They all died. Oh my god. You don't know this. You got to. Because he didn't want to pay him. Why don't you do your homework? <laughs> oh my god! I thought you were this professional. There's yeah. too many of these guys. No, but they're all in my life. They're all my friends. <laughs> we, we've done our. Oh, reason. you're looking. You're looking at me like where's the door? <laughs> do you know about one Corona? We have done our research on Saran you Saran. Have to. We've done hours of research on Saran. I love Saran. I love Saran. I love I love him so much. I mean, I wouldn't be the man I am right now if it wasn't for him and Michael Thompson. What was the, he like? He was. Listen. You hear that? Yeah. Nothing. That's him. Hey, what about Hey, what do Didn't talk. Never talked. And he didn't talk to anybody, and he talked to who he chose to talk to, who he chose to talk to. And he talked to Michael, and he talked to me. And I have the utmost, like I told you the story. When I was doing my legal work, every morning, you know, we've gone over this. Every morning, I would give him, he would give me a word on a piece of paper. And then the next morning at breakfast, he would say, okay, give me three things that you do reciprocal. Reciprocated, reciprocal, the fundamental of coming back over again. Okay. Then the next morning he'd give me another word. And I would use those words as I do today. He taught me, as I always say, I don't mean to sound facetious. That was a Sirhan word that taught me. And Michael Thompson took my words, took my appeals, and did my... Michael Thompson is a... I would say he's 70% the reason why I'm here today. Shout out to Mike. Do you understand that? Yeah. And I don't care what anybody says. You only could kill so many people. And then you have to do something. And my doing something was the saving of the officer. And them transferring me to Nevada was the greatest thing that happened in my life. I'm here today because they transferred me to Nevada. If I would have stood in the California prison system, I would have killed Singletary. I would have killed these child molesters. I would have killed these baby rapers. Because no one should touch a woman or a child. Mm-hmm. What did Sir, Sir Han have to say about Kennedy? You know, we spoke very... Uh, we, we, I never... You know, in prison when you're a lifer, you never ask somebody about their crime. You know this, Sean. You know, I never say what you're in for. Bad manners. It's, it's just disrespectful, especially if you're a lifer and you're of stature. But he always said it wasn't my gun. It wasn't my gun. And um, I didn't know what he meant till I saw that the Kennedys showed proof that a gun that has six bullets, a revolver, and there's numerous you know, it doesn't... Doesn't help. He knew, he knew, but I never asked. So I can't, I can't compound upon what you ask me. I can't really truthfully. All I could tell you is I didn't see him as the man who killed Kennedy. I saw him as the man that was teaching a 19-year-old kid, boxer from 18th Street, when he told me, you're smarter than all of them, you're more articulate and intelligent than all of them, better yourself. So I took, I heeded those words. And then Michael Thompson said, Joey, stop that shit. Focus on getting out. 
So that's why you asked me, you asked me. I never asked him, but I just know that along my journey in life, 40 years in prison, I owe a lot to Sir Han. I owe a lot to Charles Manson, as crazy as that might sound. He took the music out of me and said, listen to Paul Hardcastle, listen to Hiroshima, listen to some Johnny Coltrane, let your mind go and focus. That was Manson. Sirhan was educate yourself. And then I took everything that I did to Michael Thompson. And because he had this beautiful thing in his room in a cell that printed words and he took what I did and he formulated it and I was able to get out because of that. So I owe a lot to Michael Thompson. And and, and I'll never you know, when people are good to you, even if things even if the the journey turns away that you don't see that person again. I have to give homage to that person because I'm a better person today. The person who made me the baddest man on earth was Benny the Jet Ukitas. I, I tell you and everybody to Google him. YouTube him. He's a legend and nobody knows who he is. But these are people that help me. And in the real world, people think that Sirhan's a killer and Charles is a lunatic and Michael's an Aryan Brotherhood shot caller. But for an 18-year-old kid who's lost and doing life, imagine being 18 years old and you're not going to the pro board. The year is 1980 and you're not going to the pro board till 2023. They're not even going to talk to you till then. What do you do? I chose to be a beast. And the day that officer screamed, the beast left me. So you receive a mail and visits from Terry, another old friend who said he decided to marry for conjugal visits. I married six times in prison just for conjugal visits. I mean, what was that like? The conjugal visit? <laughs> she well, means like, you have to go to a special room, how's it, how's it, is there a bed, how's it? I think every woman would like to be with a man that hasn't been with a woman for 40 years. <laughs> I married just for uh, drugs. Uh, women were, I married women that, because I, um, at that time, in 1986, I was a uh, dear rock and roll gangster. I was a Teen Angel magazine, Orly's Lowrider magazine. I was the artist. So I did a wanted poster, wanted, someone sincere, boop, 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 and I had a full page. And I would get bags of mail from women all over the country. And so I would, they'd visit me, they'd take care of me, and then I would tell them what I needed them to do. And that was bring me drugs, send me packages, and I'll make you rich. So you had quite a lot of fan mail. Yes. How did you pick who was suitable? Well, you know, if you're, a, if, if you're a hustler and a player, you know the ones that are vulnerable. You know, I'm, I hate to be crude like this, but, you know, if a woman says that she'll do anything for you, well, then marry me and bring me an ounce of heroin. So that was what the conjugals transpired into. Mm. They send you out on Friday to a trailer outside of the prison, between the prison gates. You're there till Monday. She brings enough food for three days and bring me the drugs and 
let me go in and make some money, take care of the mob, give them their 20%, and then uh, live the life that I led. And that's the reality that's happening all over the world. And now prisoners, <coughs> they use the internet, don't they, and the right a prisoner kind of thing? And... Well, we lost. We lost our conjugal visits in California because of Tex Watson. Tex was the killer. It wasn't Charlie. Charlie was... 25 miles away in Spawn Ranch in Simi Valley. You don't think he murdered? He didn't murder anybody. No? Oh, come on. People are so gullible, you know? It, it, it's, it's like with me. People are so gullible. They believe what they want to believe. But if you, re if you do your homework and you Google it... Charlie was 25 miles away. What happened was Charlie was at the Spawn Ranch with his 10 flock of women doing acid, orgies, and getting high. Tex came and said, I'm going to go kill Folger, I'm going to go kill Bianca. And Charlie told me, he said, go ahead, I don't give a fuck who you kill. I'm over here getting banged, my brain's out and getting high. <laughs> so Tex went over there, did all that helter-skelter shit, while Charlie was across the city. And when he got busted, he blamed it on Charlie. Yeah. But Charlie loved it because he was a recording artist that couldn't make it. He was a guitarist that sucked. He couldn't sell his songs. And when Bugliosi, the DA, signed on and went after Charlie, it was Vietnam War at that time. They needed something to take their mind away from it. To this day, you couldn't get busted for hearsay. If Sean was to tell you to kill that man over there, that's what happened. Sorry, Liam. No, but I'm, I'm giving you a, you know, and I, I wish that everybody knew about it. Charlie was just, Charlie was just the right place at the right time, and he ate it up. Charlie couldn't kill, imagine a five foot tall guy that weighs 100 pounds soaking wet, and hasn't worked out a day in his life, <laughs> and out of his freaking mind. We all have a friend like that. Yeah. And couldn't, and couldn't bust a grape in a grape field. That was Charlie. Charlie didn't have a bad bone in his body. So that's why I would wish people would really understand Charles Manson had nothing to do with those murders. But he was he loved it and he took full responsibility and he played it off like a he should get the Academy Award of all time. They should give award him an Academy Award. Every time. Manson interview. Joey. Showtime. <laughs> wow. That was Charlie. You know, that was Charlie. You know, when I when I would do his mail, and I remember so much that all his mail came from England. That's what was so bizarre about it. And he said, they got a motorcycle gang of me in England. And I was like, wow. But yeah, no, Charlie is, and Tex, Tex is the beast. See, Tex, another killer could look another killer. Tex is a killer. Charles is a clown, a clown. He wanted so much attention. He, they could have said you, you know, you killed 90, okay. He, he, he loved it, he loved it, he loved it. He became a celebrity in prison and he loved it and he died to it because he couldn't be anything on the street. But Tex fucked our family visits off and the lifers wanted to kill him. How did he do that? He had numerous children in prison, numerous with conjugal visits, and they were being raised under the state payroll because his wife didn't work. So every kid he had, the state had to pay for. 
So the Folgers, you drink Folgers coffee, the Folgers family went after them and they went to all the lifers in prison in California and took our family visits away from us. Wow. And, but if you weren't a lifer, you could get a family visit. But they took all the family visits from lifers just because of Tex Watson. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yes. but, but there's a little bit more to that, isn't there? Because Tex Watson, didn't he start like a religious... Oh, he's a Christian, he's a minister. And he became a minister, and then he got married, and he started... Yeah. That's how that began, didn't it? This As he sold drugs him. on the yard. He was a minister when it served him well. Mm. Praise God and shoot this heroin. So he was manipulative. Oh, he's, he's, he's a master. Every time I'd see him on the cell block, I'd see him on the tier... I said, you piece of shit. Fuck you, bitch. What? I used to tell him, what, bitch? What? Yeah, go fucking down the hall. I just hated him. I despised him, you know, because he had that. You ever met somebody you just want to punch in the fucking face? <laughs> and that was Tex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so it's 1986 now. You get transferred to maximum security in Nevada State Prison located in Carson City. Yes, sir. Snow-covered mountains. What was your arrival like there? Sounds picturesque. No. They, uh, they put me in the dungeon, they call it. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, every inmate that comes in from another state, they have to verify your gang affiliation. They have to verify who you are. But I was there for saving the life of a correctional officer. And that's when I tell you that I never knew how much people could love me. I never knew. I never knew. The guards treated me like a king. They remembered me from the boxing days, not as being boxer from 18th Street, not for being mobbed up. But hey, he saved a correctional officer. Hey, you wanna sweep the, you wanna use the phone a little bit longer? And I was like, wow. How did you feel with all that newfound praise? Uh, Phil Sean needs a sandwich. <laughs> you know it, it, it was it was um i felt it was long time coming how's that it was a long time fucking coming i got a plate put in my head i got told it never happened i got beat i got stabbed and now a whole nother state the officers know that this tattooed gangster ain't him he did something right. He saved one of ours. That's when they transferred me to Gene, Nevada, and that's when my redemption began. That's when uh, the beginning of my life started in Gene, Nevada. So when you walked onto that yard, it wasn't like in California, was oh, it? People no. were more relaxed? Oh, God. Nevada prison system is like, you know, you got card cheats and slot cheats. And, and you know, uh, I was there with... My, Johnny Sacco. Tell us about Sacco. Oh, my God. I had just seen him on 60 Minutes, and he smoked a cigar that, oh, my, like, I've never seen a cigar that big. I didn't even know how you could put it in your mouth. <laughs> hey, Goomba. And uh, Mr. Sacco, I called him. Uh, he had just got busted in Dominican. He had, he owned, he's the biggest offshore sports gambling man That's in him. the world. Yes. He's a legend. He's my, I love him. He's a mentor. He's the one who put me into gambling. He hooked me up with Dino Da Vinci, and Dino Da Vinci was the, one of the 
your your friend, Michael. And uh, Dino da Vinci ran two bet Golden Palace. At that time, I was putting, I was paying fighters from prison five thousand dollars to put Golden Palace on their back and stencils. So when they got in the ring, do you remember that people were wearing? And they stopped it, but Mr. Sokol was in prison with me. His claim to fame was um, the biggest gambler, one of the biggest gamblers in the world. And I was his, you know, I, I, I did what I did. So what was your cell? What did your cell look like at this, at, in Jean? Whole different picture. Were you on your own? Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you. <laughs> it was no longer California or Arizona. Bunk bed, nice single bed, TV, real porcelain, wall-to-wall carpeting. Every night at 6, the donut truck came in, newspapers, donuts. You want to go do eight holes on the golf course? In prison. And me and Mr. Sacco would walk around and it said, gambling is the key. Gambling. Gambling's the key. If you ever get out, see me in Costa Rica, Dino da Vinci. And uh, I did. In fact, that was 86, 96. You figure 20 years, 30 years later, I'm in Costa Rica with them all. Another character you met quite quickly then was from the Spilotro family? Ernie. I can't talk about it. Okay. okay. I'll just read a little bit because you can't talk about it. So... Ernie's boss had recently been found buried in a hole in the desert. His crew was known as the Hole in the Wall Gang. Oh, yeah, that was the Hole in the Wall. They entered through one building to rob the adjacent one. He was also a barber who gave a nice cut. And that you smoked Garzio and went down memory lane with him. Yeah, that was my boy. And then Anna came and visited you on Saturdays? Every Saturday, yeah. And you told Sacco that you wanted to fight again. Well, you have to understand, I'm only 25 years old, 26 years old, and I'm running the yard, I'm doing five miles a day. Uh, if you watch the YouTube, the Joey Torre story, you could see me put my hands on the bag. You see me train, you see, did you watch the video? Yes. That's me at 25, 26. Now they're bringing in world-class fighters from top-ranked boxing to come into the prison to fight me. And I'm dusting them. <laughs> So they're saying, let's get this guy out. So Mr. Sacco says, he pulls some strings for me. And I can't go no further. So they needed boxers out at the prison for, for an exhibition. Top Rank was the same agency who asked you to fight when you were 17. And you made an appointment with the warden, Walter Luster. Luster, Mr. Luster. He was a boxing fan and he's in his 60s. And he said he loved the idea of promoting fights from prison. And then you just went on the rampage, didn't you? You called every television station. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. Before that, I, I contacted Boom Boom Mancini. You know who Boom Boom is. Explain to the UK audience, because they don't know the US sports uh, players. No, the world knows who Ray Boom Boom Mancini is. They did movies about him. Liam, have you heard of him? Yes. Oh, okay. come on. Great, great fight. Yeah, he fought Dooku Kim, killed him in mm. Vegas in the 15th mm. round. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he he was the one of the he fought Hector Camacho. He fought he's in the Hall of Fame. I contacted um, through Frank and through Mr. Siegel, and I contacted Boom Boom, Carlos Palomino, uh, Ruben Castillo, Muhammad Ali, uh, Sugar Ray, and 
they all came to see me. You met Muhammad Ali. He's oh, met Tyson. He's met no, Donald no, no, this gets crazy. No, I got no, 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 no. I got, I, I got. <laughs> no, I got something better for you. Oh God! Okay. My, <laughs> my mother's dying of cancer. Oh. 1986. I'm talking on the phone with Muhammad. I have a party, a fundraiser in San Diego called Bad Boxers Against Drugs. Ali takes my mother to the hotel room and he's showing her magic tricks because he loved magic. And my mother starts crying and bawling. She dies a week later, but Ali stood in my life. Ali stood in my life. Um, he just stood in my life for all those years. He was a great man. And to this day, I still remember they had the program, Bad Boxers Against, in San Diego. And it was just, the world just, the world took flight with my story. It was, you know, you have to understand, there's no internet at this time. Nobody knows what the internet is. This is the first time my story's ever getting told. But, um, yeah, I, I love Mike Tyson. I love Mike. Mike's, Mike's a great guy, man. If Mike was here, Mike isn't the Mike that people think he is. Mike slap you in the head, give you a hug, and, and, and tickle you. Mike, Mike's a great fucking guy, man. I have nothing. I remember when I got out, I saw him at the convention center and he had just saw me on the cover of Las Vegas Review Journal newspaper. And he goes, I know you. And he's telling all his bodyguards, this guy just did 30 fucking years and come to my house, let's party. And Mike is a great guy. But um, yeah, it's, it's... Were you allowed to your mother's funeral? <sighs> wow, that's... <it's... laughs> I'm a strong man. I called the director of California Department of Corrections on a three-way phone call. I'm in Gene, Nevada. They tell me my mother's dying. She needs a bone marrow transplant. She says no. I called the director of corrections, Jim Gomez. I said, hey, listen, I'm Joey Torres, the egg champ. My mother's dying. I'd like to go see her. But I'm three-waying on the phone with Carlos Palomino. He goes, you're an inmate? I go, yes, Charlie 47554. And then Carlos says, Mr., I met you at a marathon. I'm Carlos. Oh, Carlos, okay, champ. Inmate, hang up. And I hung up. I keep calling Carlos. It's busy, it's busy. I'm like, what the fuck? I finally get through. He says, hey, they're taking you out tomorrow morning. You're going back to Los Angeles. They're going to free you for a day. It's never happened in the history of corrections. I went to the hospital. The security guards come up and say, Hey, there's an inmate here. I go, oh, no, no, don't worry, I got him. I was the inmate. And I signed my mother to take her off life support. And I went back to the prison, Chino, turned myself in, and they returned me to Nevada. I was the first convicted murderer, because in the penal code it says no convicted murderer will be released into society. Wow, that's something you just, things just, isn't that something? Sounds good, isn't she? Yeah. But yeah, that was, that's, that's, that's. But I owe that to Carlos, because uh, at the time my agent was Stephen Schiffman from Chewy Nougat. He represented Michael Jackson. He's the guy who did all the little teddy bears for the monkeys that Michael had. Michael Jackson's monkey. Yeah, what they did was they took his monkey bubbles, and in, like, yeah, bubbles. Yeah. But in California, in the U.S., they Chewy Nougat, Michael uh, Stephen Schiffman. He made a collection of teddy bears, had Michael Jackson's permission, and made millions. But he was my agent. 
he was representing me, trying to trying to get me out, trying to help me get back in the ring. And uh, he paid. I had to pay double time for the officers. Two officers were two behind me. So I had to pay, I think it came out to like maybe $16,000. They'll release you on a temporary TCA, temporary community leave that you have to pay for the officers that are taking you there. And 99% of the time, inmates can't afford it. But I was able to. And thank God I gave my mother a kiss, took her off life support, drank a bottle of tequila, and went back to prison to do another 30 years. And my father, they let me out for my father who died later. It was around this time you called Daryl Strawberry. Do you know who Daryl Strawberry is? No. Okay. <laughs> right fielder for the New York Mets. Um, fucked off the greatest baseball career in history doing crack cocaine. He was the living legend of uh, New York City. Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, uh, MVP. Yeah, I knew Daryl and his brother Ronnie and Eric Davis and Royce Clayton. and These were kids that grew up in the city that became some of the greatest baseball players. And I decided, because I had bad, hey, let me get some of my friends that I grew up with. So I contacted Daryl. What I did was, did you watch the video, the Joey Torrey story on YouTube? Yes. yes. Did you see that girl that said, he changed my life, I saw what a man could do in prison? Well, she's walking with that fat guy. Well, that fat guy is John Nadell, the editor of the Associated Press, who contacted me to save his daughter to get off drugs. She was into meth, wasn't she? Meth, like crazy. Well, John Nadell gave me the phone number for Eric Davis and Daryl Strawberry, and that's how my that's that's how my claim to fame began, because Daryl Strawberry told. Dion Sanders, who told Paul Molitor, who so now I had the top athletes in the world coming to the prison to see me and asking me to represent them. I told them, can, if I can make you a million dollars, if you can make me a million, make it. But do I have to deal with your agent? No, my agent only deals with my contractual agreement with the Major League Baseball. So then I started contacting Mercedes Benz. You're a player, you're playing in Cincinnati, Eric Davis. Mercedes-Benz will give you and your wife two Mercedes, give you $250,000 a year to promote Mercedes. I'd get my finder's fee, five, 10000 and then I'd move on to do the next deal, baseball card deals, memorabilia deals. And it got to the point where I needed to find places to put the money because I was making so much money in prison. And that's when I started bad. And that's when I started reaching out to the children and going, at that time, again, let me reiterate, there was no internet. But I would go live from the warden's office, Walter Luster, via whatever they did, CAM or I don't know, I'm illiterate when it comes to technology. And I'd be sitting in front of 150 black kids in Harlem PS29 and they're asking me questions about prison. And that's when my life changed. That's when it changed. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. 
do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. So, Joey, you started to get a line on baseball cards. How did that work? Jim Pasco, who owned classic baseball cards, um, he was a big fan of mine because of Daryl Strawberry. I, I became, because of Daryl Strawberry and Eric Davis and Deion Sanders and Emmett Smith, I became the person you contacted to get a hold of the person you needed to get to. Because you have to understand, when you're a baseball, to receive my associates was in general, my bachelor's was in sports management. I always saw myself as being a sports agent for inner city athletes, if I ever got out. So contacting Eric Davis and Daryl Strawberry, they put me in a position to contact other athletes. And then I realized they needed endorsements because when you get to that level, when you're making a $100 million contract, but they want more. But the agent doesn't do it because the agent's negotiating with the baseball team. It's like Rooney playing for Manchester United and he's getting X amount of dollars, but hey, Joey comes along and says, hey, Mr. Rooney, I could get you to go over here with the baseball card company and make you another 100 million. So what I would do was, well, it's just to put it in a, a, a way that across over here you would understand. I would contact, I'd have permission from Eric Davis. I would call Jim Pasco from Classic Cars, also known as SCRB Scoreboard. They had just gone on the market. They had just started trading. And I would say, hey, Mr. Pasco, I'm Joey Torres. I represent Daryl Strawberry, Emmett Smith. And I'd give him the lineage of the, who I represented. But hey, aren't you the guy in prison? I go, you got a problem with that? <laughs> aren't you that gangster? You got a problem with that? I'm talking business. I would love to have Eric. I would love to have Daryl. So we would negotiate a deal. And then I would turn it over for permission from the players and receive my finder's fee. I would negotiate deals for Daryl and Eric to go to Japan for a home run derby, airfare, et cetera, et cetera, finder's fee. Is that where you're asking? Yes. You had a relationship with Reebok? Reebok, um, Eric contacted me because he wanted, well, I had came out with an idea, which sadly it didn't sell, but I, it was on the verge of making me seven figures. I pictured myself in a black and white commercial for Reebok, running around the prison yard with a gun tower and shotguns, and I put my Reebok up, up on this chair, and I say, I'm Joey Torres, and I wear the lifer shoe by Reebok. 
Those genius. They didn't go for it. They didn't go for it. Sadly, they didn't go for it. But they did go for signing. They did go for signing um, Eric and Daryl. And then what happened was um, Eric Eric Davis called me and said, "Hey, I just bought this house, and I need you to get me." They had just came out with that thing called breakaway rims, where if you dunk, it gives. And so I called Reebok, and I had them installed in his house. And he would do publicity for Reebok for the rims. Were there any companies who wouldn't deal with you because you were in prison? No. Hang up the phone. No. no. I never got that. Hmm. I never got that. I never, I never received. Well, you know, I received that. I got a phone call from uh, John Cassetti. He was the, uh, he was starting a company called um, Rollerblades. And... He said, I had this idea with four rolls that called rollerblades. I need quarter of a million. I didn't have a quarter of a million, but I wish I would have because rollerblades, they're all over the world now. Huge. So when Carlos Palomino visited you, he described it looked like the guards were working for you. <laughs> Coming by to check in on them periodically, asking if you needed anything. It didn't, it didn't appear like prison. <laughs> I had the I had guards that I would I would send five grand to their house, and every day I would wake up that go to the yard and come back there'd be a bottle of vodka under my pillow, or the Rolex I wanted to wear or my pinky rings. I I paid the guards to, to do what I wanted. Is that yeah yeah okay. you, you you've told us the very moving story about Muhammad Ali and your mum, but you did get before that you got a visit from your dad. Yes. Uh, the warden called you out. What do you recollect from that visit? Where he told me I couldn't be what you were. Oh, my my father, um, my my family, my my life has been uh, uh, a mini me, you know, a, a prodigy of, you know, an amateur record of a hundred and three and two with seventy six knockouts. That was my claim to fame. I couldn't be beat. And I was 16. And I, my father pushed me to fight because I realized in later years that my father was a coward. So he took pride in me, just as my brothers took pride in me. My brother Luigi would tell Mr. Sika and Bats Battaglia, hey, let's send Joey. And my father came to see me, knowing that he's dying of lung cancer. And, you know, I asked him, why, why did you, you know, he goes, I want to tell you. I was jealous of you because you were the fighter I could never be. And, you know, I think of that a lot. Even now I think of it a lot. You know, like, I wish I would have had a pint with him. I wish I would have had a moment with him. I, I, I spent more time with you, Sean, than I did with my own father. Because my father feared me and he, he was jealous of me. And he beat me like a man. And he shouldn't have done that. Does that answer your... But you did arrange something for your father, um, who was ill, and in terms of Daryl, Strawberry, took uh, him to, didn't he take him to a Dodgers that, game? No, is it, not just that. It was George Foreman. I contacted a great guy named Jay Edson from Top Rank Boxing, one of the greatest matchmakers of all time. And he invited my father to Foreman's comeback when Foreman made the comeback. And he put my father ringside and they took care of my father like a champ. And 
I showed my father at the end who I really was. So I'll never have no fear because my mother and father passed on knowing that they had a good boy. And Eric Davis, it was at the end of his career and he got traded from the Detroit Tigers to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And they invited my father to sit on the bench during the game. <laughs> and that just totally blew my father's mind. Mm. I ended up at the end of my mother and father's life giving to them more than they gave to me. Mm. Does that make... Yeah. yeah. Were your parents together to the end? My parents were married 57 years. They were together. And my father, I think he didn't die of cancer. I think he died of... A broken heart. He didn't know how to make coffee or toast bread because my mother did it for 50 years. But he was a good man. He was just, you know, the 40s was a different era. You know, my mother never wore pants. My mother always wore a dress. My mother smoked in the bathroom. She wouldn't smoke in public. It was that kind of era. But I know that they died. You know, my mother told me, she said, now I could die because I know you're okay. Oh. And to take your mind off your mom's death, you've produced a TV show. I did a program. It was called The Reporters with, uh, I think he's from over here somewhere, uh, Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> yes, Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, he did The Reporters, uh, our special of my Joey's life for my mother. Wow. And what about Rapamania? Rapamania was, I got a call from Stephen Schiffman, the man who was Chewy Nougat, who did the Michael Jackson uh, Bubbles dolls. And he said, listen, I know you're from L.A., and I know that you're respected by everyone. I want to do a concert called Rapamania that is live via satellite from the Hollywood Palladium in New York City with the leading rappers. But we can't get the rappers because you need to. So I contacted Dice and Trey from the Lynch Mob, who were featured in the movie Straight Outta Compton. And these kids that I grew up with, because I was with their mother back in the 70s. It's, oh my gosh. So I, Rapamania was Dice and Trey from the Lynch Side, Darren Turntime. Darren Turntime was a 16-year-old kid, rapper. He needed to get in the studio. I sent him to Sony. I put him in the studio, $500 every session. He came out with a song called Gorillas in the Mist. It went double platinum. And that's when I did the bats because of Daryl Strawberry. His bat company did 50 lacquer bats that said Ice Cube on it. And if you ever watch the movie Straight Outta Compton and they're on stage, those are the bats that I sent them. But what was your question? No, you, you've answered the question about the the, uh, the shows, but because this got so big then, by 1988... Oh, oh, no, no, no. Let me stop you. So Rapamania, so what I did was I contacted Cube, I contacted Debbie Allen, I contacted... See, Debbie Allen wanted to produce my movie. She was into producing. But I needed to get into the community, and I contacted all the rappers that I knew. They did it. It's still to this day, you could go to get a CD called Rapamania 1, 2, and 3. Wow. But I fucked up and didn't take the gross, and I was supposed to take the net. I didn't know about that stuff, and I got fucked at the end. Because <sighs> was that the NWA? Yes, yes, yes. 
I was that that was the thing. Ice Cube and the Lynch Mob, and Dice and Trey were from the Lynch Mob. But I had put those kids in the studio from prison to produce it. And they went on. Debbie did the commentary for the movie and for the concert. Did you know the NWA? Yeah. Yeah. So things got so big by 1988. You were featured on the George Michael Sports Machine, Fox Television, The Reporters, A Current Affair, and then sacks of mail started to pour into the prison for you. Remember, there's no internet. You know, I want, I want, I need for you to understand. There's no internet. Imagine with the internet. My story is being told here for the first time. You know, that's why I'm here in London. You your, know? your phone bill was $3,000 a month. <laughs> well, oh, no, I got, I, but, but you got to understand this. So, oh, my gosh, you got to understand this. There's a program called YDI, Youth Development Incorporated. In Al Albuquerque. Albuquerque, New Mexico, a great man named Chris Baca. He, he contacts me. They're trying to raise money for children. I said, I have you. What do you need? He says, I need to bring celebrities. I need to do fundraisers. I gotcha. Don't worry about it. I brought in Emmett Smith, Carlos Palomino, Daryl Strawberry, Jeff Bagwell. I brought in 15 of the leading number one athletes at that time. They were able to do homes for pregnant women. I did that. What about Edward James Olmos? Great man. Sent me the script for American Me. I told him not to use it. So you were making so much money that you said 200 <laughs> quid, uh, kids to Magic Mountain. Well, you know, a lot of the inner, kiddies, inner city kids, you know, you, you know, when you really think about it, you know, you guys are in a great position. You're working. You're both working. You got to... You gotta, what do you guys call it, a pound in your pocket? <laughs> well, there's a lot of kids that never get the opportunity to go to Disneyland or Magic Mountain. It wasn't that I was making so much money. You have to understand, I'm doing life in prison. Let's, let's not get this twisted. I'm doing life in prison, never knowing if I'm getting out, and I'm not going to the pro board for 30 more years. But that's when it goes back to that woman screaming, being assaulted. See, what I did... That taught me. That is just... All right, go ahead. So did you go over to the state pen in Santa Fe? Yeah, during, yeah. So you, you did a transfer, was it? What happened was I was uh, in Nevada, state prison. Now you have to understand, I have bad going on. I'm representing athletes. But I, I wanted a conjugal visit. I needed to get laid in a, in a very, well, I'm just being honest, okay? Let's just be honest, okay? I'm doing life in prison. California has no conjugal visits. Nevada doesn't have any conjugal visits. So Chris Baca says, come to New Mexico. So I called the Department of Corrections, Mr. Jim Gomez again. I said, you know, I'm Joey Torres. I know who you are, Joey. You know, you never thank me for sending you to see your mother. I said, but I have something. I saved her life, saved my life. I'm married now, I have a wife. Be honest with you, I need to get laid. So they approved the transfer to New Mexico State Prison. <laughs> well, you know, it is what it is. 
You guys are looking at me like I'm out to lunch here. <laughs> and the, the former gas chamber room. Oh, that was the best one. When you, when you arrived there. Anyway, they transferred me to Santa Fe Prison. If you knew about the riots at Santa Fe Prison, it, it was it's legendary. Many people died in the riots at Santa Fe State Prison. And when you arrive there, the sergeant is sitting in the chair that they used to put the inmates in when they executed them. That's a hell of a way to arrive to a prison. Ooh, frightening. And it was the depths of hell. It really was. I was very taken back because I had just came from Nevada where I was playing golf. But in time, I made them see it my way. Because New Mexico doesn't have a football team. But they love the Dallas Cowboys. And who's my friend? 1993, just won the Super Bowl, Emmett Smith. And instead of saying, where are you going? He's supposed to say Disneyland. He says, I'm going to see Joey. <laughs> and I present you with the pictures. Please, I hope you post them. Yeah, we got them. It's the week after the Super Bowl, and he's visiting me in prison in Santa Fe State Penitentiary. I know it sounds bizarre, my friend, but this is the life. It's all documented. I know, but it's just, it even blows my mind that I did all this, you know. So the sports players continue to come visit you in Albuquerque. <laughs> But you also now start a prison radio show called Sports Talk with Joey T. Yes. <laughs> it's getting wilder, wilder. Well, you remember there's no internet. Yeah. I had a good friend. His name is Sparky Anderson. He was the coach for the Cincinnati Reds. He's a Hall of Famer. Sparky Anderson was the only white man that grew up in Compton, California. He's, he found some of the greatest ball players of all time. He was the coach of the Big Red team with Johnny Bench and Pete Rose. And he loved the hell out of Joey. He loved me. He's my friend. I loved him. I saw him before he died, and he had dementia. He didn't even know who I was, and it broke my heart. But I said, he said, you should do a radio show. You know too many people. You know, I'll be your first guest. So I contacted the Albuquerque radio station, who had just interviewed me for Emma Smith and Paul Molitor, and at that time I had brought in Sugar Ray Leonard, and et cetera, et cetera. So they gave me an hour between six and seven every evening and I would bring on my celebrity friends and I'd do it from the prison phone with my celebrity friends three-way all over the world. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, but you have to remember yeah. there was no internet. There's no internet. No podcasts. So you'd have to, you'd phone off the prison phone. Well, I paid, let me bring this back to you. I, um, there was Chris Barker from YDI. My whole business at that time, being in New Mexico, I was assisted and guided by Chris Baca. Chris Baca was the director of Youth Development Incorporated, one of the biggest nonprofit programs that helps children in the United States of America to this day, YDI, Youth Development Incorporated. And we became good friends. And I said, everything I do, I'm going to do for you and the kids. I don't give a fuck about me. I have enough money to last me three life sentences. And how much money can you spend when you're in prison? You only could draw the X amount. You only could have three other inmates get the max amount for you. You know, it's it is, you know, you're sitting on 50K, what are you going to do with it? You're in prison. So I hired attorneys to try to get me out, but they just ripped me off. But that's a later story. So 
I did the podcast or the radio show and I would be in the warden's office. I paid a woman. There was Ron Chavez. He was the associate director of Chris Baca. And I paid his wife $500 a week. And I would call her and she would three-way me around the world. <laughs> yes, that was my... If it wasn't for her, nothing would have been done. So I paid her... Her sons wanted jerseys for men, but I got her son's jerseys. They needed extra money to pay the rent, I paid the rent. They wanted to go on vacation, I paid the vacation. But I paid her from 7 in the morning to 7 in the evening. I would call her, I'd say, dial this number. The Omni Hotel, I need to speak with Superman. And the lady would laugh and connect me to Deion Sanders. Connect me to Barry Sanders. And I would say, hey, I need you to do my radio show. No problem. Does that answer? Was it a success? Yeah, but, you know, it was what it was. I, you know, I was, when you're doing life in prison, you're trying to, you, when you're in life in prison, you're trying to fill the void. I read, I read so much that, you know, I read The Art of War eight times. I I, I read, I read, my thing was reading biographies, Lee Iacocca, I would love to read. I, I became wanting to enhance my mind. You know, it's following the stock market. You know, when Jim Posco says, we just signed Shaq, I loaded up on scoreboard. I told all my friends to, and I made money off of that. So it's expanding your mind. You're not boxer from 18th Street no more. Oh yeah, you're still him. You can still whack a guy, but now you're the person that's making money. Now you're the mover and shaker, and you're in prison. And that was more mind-boggling than anything. When I'm sitting in the visiting room with the great Archie Moore, the, the greatest light heavyweight of boxing, is in the visiting room playing pool with the cops. <laughs> that's mind-boggling. <laughs> you know, mind-boggling. What's the, life. <laughs> what's the story with the rap group Lynch Mob and the stolen hand grenades? I can't. The warden saw that you were... Lynch Mob. Oh yeah, the stolen it hand grenades. You said you couldn't answer that one. It was the LA riots. It's, 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 I could answer it. Okay, go for it. I'm in prison in New Mexico. I'm doing the radio show. I'm bringing in Emmett Smith. Ali wants me to go with Shig at the... But I don't want to deal with the Nation of Islam. I just don't. And I get a phone call from associates from the lynch mob saying, "We during the L.A. riots, they came up on hand grenades and weapons. They were stealing all the gun shops in L.A. during the L.A. riots. You remember the L.A. riots? Yeah, and the Korean snipers and yeah. all that. Yeah. And um, I can't say no more. Okay. All right, so a warden, the new warden, sees what you're doing and he wants a piece of the action. And he calls you into his office. I can't say no more. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, you, you, you laid the law down with him, let's just say. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get his piece of the action. You seriously have to read my book, bro. If you don't read my book, I'm going to beat you up. I've already read it once. <laughs> oh, you read that bullshit. You didn't read mine. You then decided to return to California. What was that about? Well, I had a good friend. Rest in peace, the great, the mongoose, Archie Moore. 
He fought Kitty Turan over here on across the pond. Remember that fight? Mm, yeah. Archie Moore was the greatest light heavyweight that ever put on the gloves. And in his punchy In his punchiness, he said, Hey, kid, you're not going to do nothing here. You got to go back home. And I didn't understand it. And it was true. The law books that are, I was reading were from New Mexico. They weren't applicable to my case. I needed to be back in California. So I'll never forget it. It was the night of O.J. Simpson, that famous Bronco chase. I'm packed up, ready to come back to Folsom Prison. The guard comes in my cell. and says, everything's clean. I go, everything's in the box, sir. How about the TV? I said, I got to pick the TV. Well, let's go. They're here. California's here for you. I pick up the TV, and there's four joints, but the paper's yellow because the four joints have been under that TV for God knows how many years. <laughs> And he holds the four joints out. <laughs> hey, what is this? And I said, Watcha! <laughs> and swallowed him. And now I went back to California with battery on a peace officer. Did that answer your question? Yes. <laughs> when we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed, and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. And the energy balls are delicious. Oh, they're my favourite, the salted pistachio. Ooh. Um, make that this morning. Let's see what this one tastes like. It is. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Their bulk packaging allow them to offer their customers high quality products at a fair price. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Well, arriving in California, describe what that was like. Wow. I mean... But, but, you know, I went from... Were you bracing for to go from luxury to come on. madness again? Come on. <laughs> you know better than that. Don't lead me. You know it. Did you uh, go into the It hole? wasn't Sheriff Arapahoe-ho. Sheriff you know, Arpaio. Arpaio-ho. Arpaio. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't... You know, California prison system, you, you gotta... There's no more uh, Rapamanias. There's no more Emmett Smiths. You're 23-hour lockdown. <sighs> But I had to give it up. You know, you have to understand, sir. Sean, my dear, you have to understand. I need to get out of prison now. I have enough money. I've touched enough souls. The kids are loving me. I'm making a difference. I'm saving lives. But how about Joey? So Archie Moore said, Hey, champ, you got to go back home. And he was punchier than a... The phone rang and he started shadow boxing. That's Archie Moore. I ask anybody to Google Archie Moore and you'll see who the great Archie Moore was. You know, I love him so much. Great. And I took, I heeded his words and returned to California, knowing what I had to put up with.
but I did it. And I went through hell. And that's when Emmett Smith, one of the greatest football players, I don't know, I know you guys don't watch our football, but great man. And uh, Jeff Bagwell from the Houston Astros and Carlos Palomino, they all uh, bankrolled me. They bankrolled me. They said, whatever it takes to get out of prison, do it. We got you. And that's when I said, hey, I'm going to take that AA and that bachelor's. And now I'm going to get a course from Brown University, paralegal. And I'm going to find a way to get out of prison. So you, you, end, you end up in Corcoran prison. Yes. And we've done our research on this. In Corcoran, at that time, it was featured in 60 Minutes because the guards were having gladiator fights, pit, pitting off the prisoners. Come on. And if the prisoners refused to fight, they just shot them dead. And multiple prisoners just got shot dead. And they had a spectator's role with guards and the secretaries and all this other stuff. And this was like proper, like, fight to the death gladiator stuff that the guards had orchestrated. It's Mike Thompson... Um, Mike Thompson Sean. has confirmed all this as well. He said this was the worst place he ever went. And Sean. Corcoran. And Corcoran, Sean. yeah. Sean. You're a two-time world champion. Who do you want fighting if you're a guard? The money's on you. I fought anybody and everybody. You don't want to get shot. You want to win. But who's going to fuck with you? I did it twice. And then Lieutenant Riggs said, no. I want you to be my clerk in the office. But I watched. I watched. <laughs> Imagine, if you can, that and now I'm back. Okay? Now I'm back. There's no more donuts. There's no more cigars. cigars. There's no more radio show. There's no more, hey, officer, take this money and bring me in a bottle. And Now it's the depths of hell. And again, when you could tell somebody something, Sean, and they could go to CBS and Google it and see the booty bandit, who if the cops didn't like you, they would send this 6'5", 300-pound black man into your cell to fuck you in your rectum till you cried. That was the booty bandit. That's if you didn't fight. So Lieutenant Riggs, a good man, Lieutenant Riggs told me, I'll never forget it. He said, in 1976, I was in Los Angeles and I saw you fight Sheikh Fugiyama at the Olympic Auditorium. I don't want you fighting. I want you to be my clerk. And I became the clerk in the captain's office. But they were so dirty, changing the paperwork. They would shoot somebody and say that they shot a warning shot. See, in California, in every cell block, they have red buckets full of sand, and they hang them in the tiers, on the upper tier. And what they do is, before they kill you, they give you that warning shot that goes into the red one. And when the sand falls, the next one's going into you. But in California, at Corcoran, in the depths of hell, and, you know, Michael was there with me. Me and Michael would look at each other going, are we next? Are we next? Because they wanted to kill us because we were high profile. We were in the celebrity row. 
I remember the cops used to yell, O.J., get off the tier, and they'd start laughing because they were waiting for O.J. Simpson to come. <sighs> so when they would fight, it was a daily process. I'd see the beautiful woman coming off. I didn't care what they were doing. I saw a woman in a skirt. I'm in depths of hell. That, that's, you know that. When you see a woman on the yard, Sean, like, hello. She could be uglier than Aunt Jemima. And you're, <laughs> you're <bye. laughs> I'm thinking of you for a whole week, girl. But um, they'd be up there. And what I found, I always held this in me. I always wanted to tell somebody. Was that I would be done with my shift working, doing the reports that were so bogus. I would do incident reports. I was that clerk that did the incident reports because I do about 60, 80 words a minute. So I was the clerk. Uh, projectile, shot him, uh, spit, uh, attacked the other inmate. And I would walk with the Lieutenant Riggs alongside the ambulance going about three miles an hour across the yard. And halfway across the yard, you would hear the bullet. And I would think to myself, why would they call the ambulance and why are we walking there before the even guys shot? Because they anticipated they were gonna kill somebody. That's another thing that'll go to my grave with me. That's another thing that'll go to my grave. The day they opened up the yard on Charles Manson to get attacked, That'll go on my mind. But what happened that day? Yeah. They opened the yard. They brought out all the gangsters. And they opened up the recreation yard for them to attack Charlie. Michael Thompson. Shitty Smitty. Lyle Hood. Shorty Shrek and Ghost. I knew them all. And he shut the gate and saved Charlie's life. But that was Corcoran. Corcoran was... You know, when they when they killed Tate, that was another thing that was mind-boggling. But Corcoran was, uh, there was no rules in Corcoran. Corcoran, there was no rules. When my father died, my father, I contacted Jim Gomez again. Jim Gomez told the warden, White, to let me go. And he said, no, he won't leave this facility. It took the special gang unit to come into the facility. Imagine, this is the Department of Corrections in California. This is a warden that is in charge of Corcoran CSP telling his boss, the director, Sacramento, no. The warden called me in the office. He says, hey, Torres, you understand English? Read this. No convicted murder will be allowed in the community. Jim Gomez said the special security, and I went, that's Michael Thompson did that. Michael did the appeal for me to go see, to bury my father. Michael Thompson did that. Wow, that's powerful. Yes. How did it feel to be reunited, to see Charles Manson and Big C? Oh, my God. It was great. It was, you know, it was a, a gangster re reunion. You know, Shorty, I saw Michael. I hadn't seen Michael in years. I, you know, it was, it was nice. It was not Jimmy was there, Jimmy McElroy, the West, the, the meat wagon. Oh, we, tell Jen about the meat wagon. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> my good friend, Jimmy McElroy, who was friends with my brother Luigi. They grew up in Brooklyn together, Manhattan. And Jimmy and my brother, they were just, 
the best of best. Jimmy McElroy, you know, these people think I'm, do they know who Jimmy is? It's all online. Jimmy McElroy was, he, he ran a thing that's legendary. If you ever wanted to whack anybody, Jimmy was the guy. Because he had a thing called the meat wagon. And sometimes there'd be 10, 20 bodies in it. And he drove it around New York killing people. But he worked for the Gambinos. Because at that time, all the Irish Westies, they worked for the mob. And Jimmy was my brother's good friend. And Jimmy was my good friend. I was He died in my arms at Mule Creek. He died in my arms, in his cell, in my arms. How did he die? Cirrhosis. But a great human being. But he was Jimmy McElroy. He was the enforcer. You know, he's the one who testified. He ended up at the end testifying on Gotti. So after the 60 Minutes program then, that showed the guards murdering the prisoners in the staged fights, how did the prison change after that? Um, it changed because the FBI came in. And the FBI got rid of everybody. I'm going to let you know now, so you can see it with the Michael Thompson thing, that um, there was an officer named Officer Tomei, who I fought with in my cell, and who handcuffed me to the cell, right above Michael's cell. But when the FBI came in, after the 60 Minutes piece, everybody disappeared. It was a whole new prison because we fought for it. You know, I, I like, if I may, mm -hmm. if I may, you know, I, say, I talk about Michael Thompson, about this killer, about this area. No. One of the most, I, I can tell you this right now, that besides Ben Thompson, who I spoke to you about, M Michael Thompson, took me to a level where beat them at their own game. And I beat them at their own game, litigation-wise. And that's when I started litigating. And when the prison changed, it was a new era. When Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor at that time, all that bullshit stopped. People stopped dying. You know, just because you're incarcerated for a crime, it's, you know, it's hard enough doing a life sentence. It's hard enough doing six years, but to have somebody feeding you green bologna, to have somebody, you know, I remember in Vacaville, we were saying, why do we have shit on the shingle, but there's no shit, there's no meat? Well, then they indict the lieutenant who was taking all the meat and selling it outside of the prison. Or my baseball card collection of Roberto Clemente and Jim Brown, how the lieutenant Van Sant took my stuff and then had the audacity to sell it online and get busted for it. But that's what Corcoran was. That's what prison was. Prison, there's no rules. So you got moved to Soledad. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Was it in Corcoran where you you got to kiss your dad goodbye? Yes, that's when I was telling you. Uh, Mr. Gomez ordered the warden of Corcoran. But at that time, that warden, Mr. White, he, he was not listening to his bosses in Sacramento. Corcoran was the only state facility. Now there's many prisons in California, 
that listen to. They have to listen to Sacramento. That's the director of corrections. But this warden said, fuck you, I'm not. Joey Torres isn't going to bury his father. And Jim Gomez said, fuck you, and sent five cars on the yard to come right to the unit and take me. And as soon as I left the facility, they parked, took all the chains off me and said, we don't know who you know or who the fuck you are, but damn. <laughs> Not to be messed with. And that's what the investigation did. When 60 Minutes, I'll never forget the old man from 60 Minutes came in. If anybody gets a chance, look at the 60 Minutes of Corcoran Prison and you will understand what transpired. We're trying to find that. Yes. You ran into Little Boxer. I won't talk about it. <laughs> Next. But he got you a job as a library clerk, which helped. You know, it wasn't that he got me a job. It was the beginning of the... It's, it was... You know, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. Are we able to talk about hepatitis C? Yeah. But I shouldn't say that because... He was able to put me in the law library where I found the miraculous writ. So I, I can't say that. Go give him some credit. I have to, but you have to understand, I was under indictment for three closed murders with him. And I don't want to talk about it because I just don't. Of course, you know. we understand. So this is where you learned you had hep C, and that was from tattooing, was it? What happened was, it started in Nevada. I was feeling lethargic, and I was like, I'm running, I'm, but why am I feeling like this? You know, I don't feel myself. I can't do five rounds on the back. I only can do two and I'm winded. And I'm saying, and I'm walking away going, man, what's up with me? And then when I returned, they had this program where you give your blood. And in return, they give you credits to go to the canteen. They came in and told me, you can't give no blood. You have hep C. And I'm like, I don't do drugs. How do I have hep C? And it was from the tattoos. Everybody thinks it's the needle, but it's not the needle. It's the ink. If I tattoo you and I have the ink here, I throw it back in the bottle. So after a year or two, you got how many people's blood in that bottle? So people need to be aware, bring your own ink. Yeah, I had a hep C advanced to the point where I had jaundice and I was, yeah. And how did they treat you? Well, I was, I was attempting, I asked them for uh, a treatment and the treatment that I was asking for was approved but they weren't giving it to inmates. And I was like, how is that not possible? How is that not possible? So being that the fact that, you know who helped me with that writ is Michael. Mm. Michael helped me with that writ. Michael did the writ for me. And um, I had, it was denied in the Department of Corrections, so I filed an 11, I filed a, an appeal, a writ of habeas. And San Bernardino Court ordered the Department of Corrections to give me the treatment that I needed. And that was an experience I'd never experienced when they gave me that shot every afternoon. So things got deadly again on the yard. You were called out by some bikers. You went out with some 18th Street guys that had your back. And then what happened? Can't talk about it. All right, well, according to this, you felt a pain in the neck and then a fist, a red hot pain in your neck, a fist came in as you tried to fight back, but you collapsed. Someone was found murdered in their cell. I can't talk about it. So the knife went into your side and while you had these injuries, you continued studying your case. 
Yeah. You get stabbed, you plug it up. When they stab me in the neck, I got my chewing tobacco and I rolled it up and put it in my hole. And carried on. And it stopped the bleeding? Because I didn't want to go to the infirmary and do a report because you go to the hole and you never get out. And you were busy in the law books. Oh my God, I was busy in the law books. I'm fighting for my life. You know, you have to understand, this was, at this time I was 40 years old. And um, I survived hep C. But I'm not the man, I'm not the kid anymore. I'm not that 18 year old kid. And now I know it's a matter of time. I gotta get out. Gotta get out. How do I get out? Can't escape. How am I gonna get out? And that's when Boxer gets me the job in the law library. And that's where I'm selling porno pictures to pay for the, I know it sounds crazy, but every time a girl would send me porno pictures, I'd send them out to the printer, get a hundred copies, <laughs> and then I'd sell them to the inmates for a book of stamps. <laughs> And I used that stamps to file my appeals. How else am I going to pay $100, $200 in stamps? I'm an inmate. So I would go to the law library every day, and Boxer would be there. I would do inmates' divorces, inmates' not to be deported. And I became spending my time using my mind and applying my time to litigation in the legal field. Wow. So little Boxer was looking at you in disbelief at the knife wound and um, hope there wasn't any internal bleeding. Then Clinton introduced a bill, Bill Clinton. Yeah, that you can't, yes, you can't appeal your case. But you can't. You can't. So that worked against you. It did. Uh, you know, everybody thought Clinton in the States was the greatest thing since peanut butter, but what happened is they did the non-appeal, which was if you pled guilty to a case... Well, in years, if you went to prison, you could appeal it. No, you can't appeal it. If you plead guilty to a crime, it's not appealable. And it was insane. I'm like, they can't do this. Yeah, that was insane. Because he locked up a record amount of people, Clinton, for low-level drug offenses. Yeah. Record amount of women as well he locked up. Yes, he did. Mm. Um, so a, a, an appeal specialist came in then? What happened was, I was up for the pro board, my friend. What happened was, I was up for the pro board and for a year, for one year. Um, I could tell you exactly it was one. is when Tiger Wood won uh, the Peach, uh, Pebble, Pebble Beach. It was, the year was 2000 and, uh, 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 I want to say 2000 and, and maybe 2001. I'm in the law library with Boxer. And every day I'm carrying books, three of the appellate division decisions on appeals. May I continue? Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember like it was yesterday. Here I am just making it over the interferon. I'm just drained. I don't want to go on. No mommy, no poppy, no packages, no visits. And I, I have to, uh, I got to dig deep. I gotta find a way to get out because they're not gonna let me go out. They're not paroling anybody like me, not with my lineage. But I remember that I was sentenced to five years, never got found guilty. 
And I knew it in my bones. So now I said, hey, you're not boxing from 18th Street. Your journey, your education. You know, people, people think education isn't anything sometimes, but for an inmate to receive his associates and his bachelors, you know, I come from a family that didn't even graduate high school. You know, and in the memory of my mom, I, I went to school. I, I took my time to do that. I took my time to use the Emmett Smith autograph money to go to Brown University to do the course. <laughs> and I applied myself. And when I would come into the cell block with the three books and the three books in my prison jacket with my beanie rolled up and my cigar in my mouth... They'd be playing pinochle going, hey, what are you doing now, champ? I go, I'm going home. I don't know about you. And it was Shitty Smitty. And it was Shorty Shrekin Ghost. And it was Michael Thompson. Four months later, at three o'clock in the morning, I screamed out of my cell. And everybody yelled, shut the fuck up. You know, you don't wake nobody up at three in the morning in prison, you know? <laughs> I found this writ, 38-page federal reporter. I challenge anybody that's watching this to go to it. From 1943, a writ of error quorum nobis. Error quorum C-O-R-E-M nobis, N-O-B-I-S. It's Greek. It's a United States law. It's a world decision called the writ of error quorum nobis that says at any time during your sentence, if an error was made that wasn't the fault of you or the court, you could file back to your remaining court for a remedy. And I simply spoke it. I went crazy, brother. I knew I was going home. I knew I was going home, bro. And I didn't even file it yet. <laughs> wow. And I, and I filed it. I sat back. But see, the thing that... Are you? Do you know who Melvin Belli is? No. Had a yacht, San Francisco. Yeah. He died, three point eight billion. What? He only rep he Dupont when women got breast implants and they popped, one point eight billion he got for them. My attorney. He files to Pete Wilson for a governor's pardon. But he fucks up and says, Governor Pete Wilson should be put on a boat without oars. I'm denied. I'm fucked. I'm in Soledad prison, in the law library, selling porno pictures to eat and sleep, and postage. And I run across rid of... Uh, hey, fuck this. I'm doing this for you right now. <laughs> I'm doing this for you right now. Fuck this. I find writ of error, quorum, nobis. I file it. But it says that no time can it be denied. You could file it as many times as you want. So I hire someone to go to the courtroom in Norwalk and sit in the courtrooms. Because when you file it, it goes to Division A, Division B, Division C. It makes it to Division D with an attorney, with a judge named Falcone who isn't a criminal judge. He's a probate judge. Now, every time an inmate files an appeal, it's usually this big. 
Mine was six pages. I am him. I did this. You fucked me. Now let me go. The year was... Uh, I don't know what the year was when 9-11 was. But it was the second 2010. day... 2010? No. 2001. 2001. It was the second day after 9-11... I'm like, why didn't I get any legal mail? Because the prison wasn't receiving mail because people were mailing white substances. Because oh, anthrax they, girl. They yeah. thought it was, so all the prisoners were getting envelopes full of white baby powder. But I got a call to the office, the warden's office. Your appeal's been granted. But we can't give it to you. Because all mail's being circumvented to the FBI. The courts called us to tell you you're leaving. And this is while the building is smoking in New York. And I hear the chains coming up the stairs. Turn around. Do your ID. I'm driven back to L.A. Three o'clock in the morning. Judge grants my release. Henceforth, they're asking for a stay of execution, which means you got to remain in custody until it's decided upon. And that's when I called Daryl Strawberry, who was in the Bahamas. I called the great Paul Molitor. He just got inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame, 3,600 hits. Oh, we miss Paul Molitor's story. You can add it. Where he was doing the cocaine and his wife called me and he was playing the Yankees and I told him, put your ass in the bathroom. What do you mean, put your, put your ass in the bathroom, Paul? And he went in the bathroom. I go, I've been in that, cell, that bathroom for 30 years, motherfucker. Your wife tells me you're banging everything, doing cocaine. What the fuck is wrong with you? You're playing the Yankees tonight. You're going to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Move forward. He posted my appeal bond on his credit card. So five transportation guards stopped in front of the cell. Yeah, with the chip, and it was eerie like a Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> Imagine three o'clock in the morning that you're sitting in your bed and all you hear is like these long chains, the wrist chains and the ankle chains coming up the, coming up the stairs. Taurus, C4s everywhere, turn around, hands on the wall. I'm like, I had just smoked a joint and I was so paranoid. <laughs> I was so fucking... I hadn't slept since it was granted. Do you understand that? I'm waiting for him to come to me. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And you've still got the infected stab wound? Yeah. I'm still stabbed. Oh, so what's happening with that? Bro, they got me there and they got me here. You, ate, you were eating a Big, Big Mac, Mac while they gave you some treatment for it. They took me back, a big prison bus, and I was the only person on the bus. And they thought they'd go for the drive-thru. They took me down to L.A., went to the, gave me my first Happy Meal in 30 years. Did you get a toy? No, they didn't do it. They didn't have it <laughs> at the time. I'll read this quote then from the court case. So Joey had tears in his eyes. The stoic judge began reading... Despite vehement opposition from the district attorney's office, petitioner's petition for writ of quorum nobis is granted. Yeah. And then 
The judgment of conviction is hereby vacated, vacated. as is petitioner's guilty plea. Petitioner is remanded to custody without bond and shall appear on December 27, 2001. But just like to say, how many years have you served at this point of the story, Joey? 37. 37? Yeah. But you get it. You do the, you, you come back, don't you? What it was, was it was from 78 till 9-11, whatever mm-hmm. that is. I don't know how many years. After, after 20, 30 years, you, you know, let me tell you something. You know, you might know what six years is or yeah. four years. But after 30 years, you kind of lose track. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I lose track. All I know is this, my friend. That's all I know. Yeah. That I did it. Motherfucker, I did it. Melvin, you said, you said something earlier, my dear. Mm-hmm. And I, I would like you to know and the world to know. You said to me, Attorney Diamond. <laughs> Him and his associate were Harvard graduates appointed to getting paid by the state to come see a lifer that's going to the parole board. And they came and saw me and they said, we're here to represent you. And I said, it's okay. I'm not going to the parole board. I just filed a writ of error quorum nobis. And he looked at him and he looked at him and they both looked at me and said, what's that? Think of that. These are attorneys, Harvard graduates, and they didn't know what a writ of Ericorum Nobis was. But I challenge anybody that hears this, or I challenge you, Google it. It's a writ from 1943, a most obscure writ. It also states you get one shot as putting a piece of string through a needle head. And if you don't do it on the first time, you can't do it again. So when that judge made what you just said, sir, I was in the wind. I was in Costa Rica. And when I got back, I gotta tell you something to make you laugh. You've heard of San Jose, California? The district attorney was so adamant because every month I had to show up for a health hearing that I haven't ran away. Because you have to understand, I'm still serving life. I'm just out on appeal. Even though it's vacated, they're appealing to the United States Supreme Court. And I knew I was going back to prison. Even when I was released, you have to understand this. I don't know if you can. Even though I was released and my sentence was vacated, I knew the judge knew and the attorneys knew I was going back to prison. Maybe not this year or next year, but I was going back. Because it also says you can't get two bites of the apple. And because of the Clinton bill, not appealable. But it hadn't been granted in the United States Supreme Court. So I knew that my time was limited. So I disappeared to Costa Rica. I would come back every month. And the DA would be more adamant and said, Your Honor, he's in San Jose, Costa Rica. Not San Jose, California. 
And the judge would say, but there's no stipulation on his release. His sentence is vacated. And I spent the next two years traveling between Costa Rica and Las Vegas until the our great friends from the FBI came to see me. But that's another story. Yeah, this is part two. Part one will be coming out soon. We've got part two out before part one because part one's still being edited. And part three, if you think just this release bit is like towards the end of this story, think again, it gets, it goes to a whole nother level of, I can't even describe what's, what's coming next, but stay tuned and you will see it. Huge thanks to Jen, huge thanks Thank to you. Joey. And um, yeah, man, absolutely brilliant. Give us a hug, brother. Bro. Uh, Give us a hug, man. Yeah, yeah.